everyone, it's Seth Rudetsky. So this week on Seth Rudetsky's Back to School, I have the super talented, so smart and so funny Bowen Yang from Saturday Night Live. And what's interesting is that we both had a similar experience in high school where we did not get along with our theater teacher. I think he basically didn't really ever start out well with a theater teacher of mine. I did start out, I was very close and then like he totally turned on me. But it, the end result was that it was a bad relationship for both of us. And the overarching point of the next story I'm going to tell is that my family and my husband and I and my friends, we always kind of reference things from a million years ago and like, like we'll have the same nickname for something. Okay, I'll give you an example. Like whenever my sister will make dinner, she'll make chicken. She'll say to me like, oh, I made chicken with an I, because when my sister Beth was six years old in her diary, she wrote like, mommy made chicken, and she put an I in it. So we just kind of always call it chicken. Like, it's kind of a joke, but like, it's not even funny anymore, but we just call it that. We just always reference things from the past. So I'm in high school. I'm on the outs from the theater department. Like I've been casting all the shows as a lead and suddenly like not cast anymore. My theater teacher hates me. So I go to see the play that I wasn't cast in. Of course, like I'm so furious about it. And I'm there in the audience with my friend Whitney, who also was on the skids with the theater department, and my friend Helen, who actually wasn't even on the skids, but she was just sort of a silent co-conspirator. So we're in the audience and, you know, (laughs) so resentful, but then of course also really immature at the same time. And at one point I remember there was one kid in the show with buck teeth. And as he was talking to somebody, there was a spotlight on him. So like the shadow on the wall almost looked like a caricature of just someone with teeth. Anyway, my friend Helen pointed to the shadow on the wall because it was really kind of hilarious looking. So we all started giggling. And then it was a play about the Holocaust. I admitted it was inappropriate to be giggling, but there were lines like, I smuggled you a salami. Like there were just inappropriate things. So we kept sort of giggling throughout the show. And like I said, it was a lot of me being resentful that I wasn't cast and I was also incredibly immature. So we're giggling in the audience. No one around us said anything. But at the end of the show, when the leading man came out to take his bow, he literally gave us the finger. So I guess it was noticed by the cast. So cut to go back to school on Monday and my mean theater teacher gets on like the school announcement, which probably he's never on. And he's like, I want to thank everybody for seeing the play this weekend. And I want to express my fury and dismay at the immature antics of three people in the audience. But I'm not surprised at their behavior considering who they are. So of course, like, you know, word got out that it was us and my AP English teacher was like, I heard you made quite a spectacle of yourself in the audience. Now, just FYI, four years in high school, constantly called a fag, constantly made fun of, constantly harassed by people, yet like no announcement was made about that. But like, because I was giggling and patrolling in the audience, school-wide announcement and school shaming. I'm like, what about all the kids that call me a fag? To the point now where we get called in for a principal's hearing. So we go in for the principal's hearing. It's me, Whitney, and Helen. And the principal is like, the three of you were seeing a play about the Holocaust. And yet you were in the audience laughing. So there's sort of a silence. And then Whitney just goes, laughing? <laughs> because obviously he just, he added a T by accident. But you weren't really supposed to comment on it because, you know, he was so angry. But Whitney was just sort of like laughing. <laughs> Anyway, nothing really happened to us, but the whole overarching point of my story is that to this day, my sister Nancy would be like, oh my God, how was the comedy show? Was there a lot of laughing? We literally still call it laughing. And this is more than 30 years ago. Um, is there any other points to my story? No. Let me just say, I really enjoyed my interview with Bowen Yang, and I think you will too. Here he is, Bowen Yang on Seth Rudetsky's Back to School. Dreading morning classes. Stealing bathroom passes. Football. Drivers and SATs. Bullies that attack me. Why do I have Jock straps, training bras, friend on these. We remember back then, it's like freshman year again. Ready, steady, now you're in it. Let's go, Sam, because any minute's ever. Let's get back to school. Bowen Yang. No! 
Hey everyone, it's Seth Rudetsky, back to school. You must know my guest from Saturday Night Live where he's hilarious. Please welcome Bowen Yang. Hi Bowen. Hi Seth, hi, how are you? It's all good in the hood. That's what young people say, I'm trying to fit in with you. Bowen, I was doing a little research. You're basically from like all over the world, right? So just give me two seconds on the childhood, the moving part. Just from the Commonwealth. I was born in Australia and then moved to Canada and then moved to the US. Places that were owned by Britain at one point. Oh, so are you an Anglophile, as we say in the business? Um, There's potential there. I haven't engaged with the culture enough to really call myself an Anglophile in the way that like Taylor Swift might be now. But you know, I've been watching AbFab a lot in quarantine. So that's, I don't know. I knew it. Psychic Gene Dixon. (laughs) Um, Okay. (laughs) Bone Yang, where and when did you graduate from high school? I graduated in 2008 from Smoky Hill High School in Aurora, Colorado. Okay, so first of all, your family, brothers, sisters, where are you in the lineup? Younger of two, older sister, two and a half years older than me, two parents, mom and dad. We lived in the sort of middle, middle class suburbs. And give me a typical day in high school, digital alarm, who woke you up? Did your mother make you breakfast? Go. Analog alarm. Mother would just wake me up for good measure in case I was lagging behind. You'd do a cereal, mostly. On your birthday, mom would hard boil you an egg. As a treat or as a punishment? As a treat. (laughs) As a treat. I guess it's a cultural thing where she's from, and just in mainland Chinese culture. On your birthday, you eat a hard boiled egg for good luck. You dip it in soy sauce. It's delicious. But do do, do you want me to just walk through like the quotidian thing first? Like the day? I guess, yeah. So yeah, give me Le Pain Quotidien, which is one of my favorite restaurants. Oh my God, one of my favorite local restaurants, Le Pen. Mm-hmm. Um, so, <laughs> uh, I mean, wh- I mean what year, so when you ask this question, are you talking about a specific year in school? Like, because freshman, sophomore, senior, junior, senior years, very tonally different, I would say. I hear you. Yeah. people. Give me, like, when you think back, like, this was high school to me, give me the typical day in high school. Okay. Um, I'm going to say end of sophomore slash beginning of junior year. It was going to school, going to your locker. Was the locker just covered and new kids on the block photos? What was it? I was not embellishing my lockers too much because we were constantly moving them semester to semester. And I was just like, there's no, I'm not going to make a home in any of these places. Had my attachment style, like ready to go sort of firmed up at that point. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then senior year, I had, I had terrible senioritis, would never go to class. I think that's like anomalous. That doesn't speak to the whole high school experience. Sophomore, junior years, I was pretty decent about going where I was supposed to. And then eating lunch in the cafeteria, it was a closed campus for underclassmen, for freshmen and sophomores. And then junior year, you could venture out, I believe. <gasps> what was your go-to yeah. restaurant? What was like your treat treat? Chipotle, which at the time was like a novelty, especially in Colorado, because it was just from Denver and it was, there was just a lot of local pride in going to Chipotle. Had a lot of harrowing experiences at Chipotle. Um, Wait, where, where one, yeah. Like what? Harrowing? harrowing? Well, I, one time I was on the improv team and then one time we went to Chipotle for lunch as a team the day of a show. There'd be a lot of like build up to the shows and whatever, just internally, we would like get really hyped up for the shows throughout the day. I wear stomach upset. <laughs> Go on. So, yeah. So yeah, no, 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 that, that's it. But just to like add context, like we were all wearing our polos from the improv team. What does your improv polo look like? So we were called Spontaneous Combustion. Great name for a high school improv team, short form. And we had black polos. And then we had like in very sort of brutalist lettering, the logo. Hmm. That was it. Very simple, very, very minimal. And so we were just at the biggest central table of Chipotle in the strip mall, very much on display, lunch rush, the lines out the door. And, um, you know, it was a very fast 
eater, not a great masticator. So took a big chunk of chicken, big bite of chicken, just swallowed it whole. Couldn't wash it down with Dr. Pepper. Kept going nonetheless. And then my esophagus, smooth muscle was just like, no, we're not doing this. And then just lurched it back up. So threw up Dr. Pepper and chicken and lettuce and sour cream at Chipotle at the central most visible table in front of everybody who was going out to eat that day. So it sounds like improv team was like your thing. What was it like before you discovered that? Were you like sportsman or were you like, I'm shy? Um, I was kind of um, giving the exterior shyness maybe, but then, you know, if you got to know me long enough, then I would like really say something crazy, sort of like that. But freshman year, I was on the JV tennis team, was the lowest scoring performing person in that entire team of like, I would say 40 people. Okay, so not that athletic, Mm -hmm. not great at chewing. So how did you discover the improv team? I was in the eighth grade and the first piece of like live musical theater that I saw. I grew up in as the child of immigrants and they were not literate in Western culture that much. Right. So, you know, I wouldn't go out to see like plays or anything, but we would watch like Sound of Music. We would watch My Fair Lady. But um, the first live musical I saw was the Smoky Hill High School production. The school I would end up sort of matriculating to, production of Hello, Dolly. And I loved it was like, this is so cool. And wow, I mean, what a great musical, what great songs, what great actors. And I was like, I want to do that when I get to high school. So went to high school, had no conception of the hierarchy or the sort of seniority value of a lot of these high school theater departments. So I was like, I'm going to try out for the musical. And it was Once Upon a Mattress, solid show, loved that show. Prince Dauntless, I'm sure you got I was the jester's understudy. You have a solid three to four performances. Why does anybody need an understudy? Because in case in those four performances they miss? Every singing role had an understudy because, you know, it was a big drama department. I think the faculty wanted to just be as inclusive, I guess, as possible. But I remember going in to audition and I had gotten the soundtrack from the library, Sarah Jessica Parker and Carol Burnett. Oh, you did your research. I did my research. I was like, okay, I know this inside and out, number by number, and auditioned. Wasn't expecting to get any role, but there was this form that they gave you. So you put in your bio stats, whatever. (laughs) By the way, the age of 14, go on. Yeah, I mean, but truly some of these kids were coming in who had like stage parenty parents who like, I don't know, just like resourced them very well. And I was coming in not knowing how any of this culturally worked how theater as like a community thing worked. So I remember going in, not having anything on my bio, haha, but then there was this form where every single role was listed. For every role, there was one column, role and then an understudy. And then the prompt at the top of the page was, check any of these roles that you will not accept. I was just like, oh, okay. I mean, I guess I wouldn't, I wouldn't want to be an understudy. Like I would love to be, you know would love to be the jester, would love to play, you know, Harry the Knight or whatever. So I remember checking down the entire column, no understudy. (gasps) (laughs) Oh, passive aggressive. Well, the director, she pulled me aside after the cast list went up and she was like, hey, just so you know, as a freshman, as an underclassman, it's not traditional to say that you won't accept the understudy. It's like, oh my gosh, I had no idea. But then she, I think let it stick that I was just this 
diva-y person. And I can never shake that off because then it was just this like terrible, we just had a terrible relationship for the rest of the four years. Oh my where, God. Yeah, terrible relationship. So the improv team was coached by the calculus teacher who was also on weekends, the assistant director to this like legitimate improv theater downtown. He's a really funny, cool guy who was not really involved in drama club, but was the improv coach. Mm -hmm. And a lot of the sort of upperclassmen, these sort of prestige students in drama club were also doing improv. And I remember going to the shows and being like, this is amazing. This seems so fun. I want to do that. So then the earliest you could audition was the end of your freshman year to come in as a sophomore. I did not get that audition, but then end of sophomore year, I auditioned again and then got in my junior year. So I was only on the team for two years. Do you remember your favorite zinger when you look back in high school? You're like, oh my God, that was hilarious. Ooh, I wore a t-shirt from Hollister that just had the words horn if you're honky. And I loved it. And anytime I wore it to school, the kids would go wild for it and be like, that's the funniest t-shirt I've ever seen. And Bowen, that must mean that you're funny. Was very much like a graphic tee kid. But P.S., it wasn't even your own comedy set you had. No, no. It was some Hollister person who probably cribbed it from someone else. Wow. And yet you got credit for it. With this theater staff you didn't get along with, do you remember any mm -hmm. specific negative comments? Like, you'll yeah. never make it in this business. Oh, like what? Yeah. Well, kind of like you'll never make it, sort of. We had a conversation that was like that, where junior year, I was like, you know, I've paid my dues. What's so funny is that she was making me out to feel entitled so then I was spending freshman and sophomore year trying to impress upon her that I was not entitled. And like our relationship sort of stayed static. And I was like, well, if you're going to think that I'm entitled and I'll be entitled. Then junior year, the show was Barnum. Terrible show. Terrible show. Bowen, there's some great, listen, I don't say the show's great. There's some great songs. Thank God I'm Old is so great. One Break at a Time is so great. There's songs in it that are so fun. God, One Break at a Time is like... Oh God, uh, what's, what, what, how does it go? Like, step one, put down a brick and pour mortar all around. It's so, ew, who cares? Like, Ethel Merman is the only person who can do it. I don't even know if she played Glenn her Close or played it. Glenn, oh, it's Glenn Close. Oh, well, Glenn Close is terrible in musicals. Terrible. I saw Sunset Boulevard in the nosebleeds. And her big entrance is like on the top tier of the stage, the top level. So then we just heard applause coming in, but all we could see was her feet, which is really funny. Um, <laughs> Next time, pay more ago. money for a good seat. I okay, know. So hold on. So the show is Barnum and you're like, ah, I demand to play P.T. Barnum. I didn't demand anything, but I remember going to the audition and this time on the form, I said, I probably don't want to play an understudy. I was in the international baccalaureate program. My academics were very demanding. And like my parents had given me this ultimatum of like, you can only do drama club if you're actually in the show. You can't yeah. be a chorus member. Because they had gone to like, at this point, like four or five shows where they were just like, oh, Bowen was just a person in the crowd. Like, that's not good. So I was like, you know what? I will only do it if I'm PT. No, I didn't say that. But I was just like, I checked in the column. I did my freshman year thing again. But this time knowing hmm. what I was doing, I was like, I don't think I want to play the understudy. And then she, the day after the auditions, this kid, Brian Black, who was a freshman, who was so talented, for some reason, I, don't, I, forgot, I forgot how I got roped into this conversation, but it was the three of us, me, Brian, and Lisa Wood. And she brought up the fact that I checked no understudy. And then she was like, but when your audition did not merit this term that you're putting out there and for Brian to come in and do what he did, he has sort of more ground to stand on to, you know, want a certain role and blah, 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 this white kid, sweet right. kid. But it was this thing of like, you do not have the right mindset for this. Like you are not like, I mean, she like really told me that like I was bad and that like I had no place 
in the musical anymore and all this stuff. And then first, uh, this is, and also, God, she just had terrible taste, Barnum. And then there was this whole number where she had dancers, these high school students twirl around these mini ladders. And then people had like the kid, the kid, the, we had to jump over the ladders. And then of course, like everyone fell on them and there were injuries. Like she, I've read the artist's way enough times to know that like the people who like have assailed you creatively, like don't deserve your sympathy. I'm like, Miss Wood, terrible. So anyway, improv was my saving grace. I had a very similar experience in high school and my teacher told everybody else that I would only make it in classical music because it's something you practice and perform by yourself, but I'll oh, never God. make it in the theater because I can't work with other people. And I'm like, 15 Broadway shows, bitch. Now what? Now what? We all have our Miss wow. Wood. We all have our Miss Wood. We do. Dick bag. Okay, so <laughs> here's the thing though. For me though, a lot of my acting out was because I was gay and people were mean to me in the cool world. So I kind of took my hostility mm -hmm. out on the theater world. So I probably was annoying to work with. So uh -huh. what was your internal gay struggle in high school? I mean, throughout the four years was called like a faggot, whatever. But at least I was able to find my little pockets in school where I wouldn't have to be like subjected to that all this time. And I was in like these classes that kind of weeded out the idiots who like would call you that in the first place. So yeah, I mean, my gay struggle was that I was out at school, but not to my parents, especially by sophomore year, especially through drama club and through seeing wow. other kids being gay. Um, that I was like, okay, this is fine. And so compartmentalized that very deeply, but then was only very like thinly, weakly, delicately connected to the cool world, which was one girl on the improv team was able to sort of like have one foot in, in each world. And I was her kind of best friend. And so I was sort of this peripheral character in cool world. So, you know, I didn't have it that bad, but I had it as typically bad as you would expect. What was like the coolest thing you got to do that you were actually included in? I got voted homecoming king. I think to this day as a joke, but I was like, I didn't care. I was like, whatever. I get to like walk at the parade. I get to like wave. I get to do all these things. I feel like this is like a common thing for gay men my age where it's like, oh yeah, I was homecoming king. Like there was some palatability or whatever, or like sort of mass appeal as far as it went in high school where it was like, oh yeah, like the nice gay guy will sort of coronate him because it just seemed like the heartwarming thing to do. And you had some outcasty things because you were gay, which was bigger, that or because you were Asian or was being Asian not an issue in your school? The Asian thing was funny because especially back in high school, I was preempting any sort of racist comment by being like so overtly self-hating in my racism, being the first to crack the Asian joke, which like is mortifying. But like that was just kind of how I processed it back then. And now it's just this thing where I'm like, pretty secure in that identity. But back then it was just like, even in drama club, like I was the only Asian kid, whereas there would be other gay kids. So it was just a thing that like, I had to underline the difference up top and then we can move on. What's the thing you're most embarrassed about doing that was anti-Asian in high school? Um, senior year of high school for the drama club, sort of like end of the year awards night or whatever, like some gathering we did. Everyone's a little bit racist from Avenue Q and I was Christmas Eve. And I was like in full drag and the crowd loved it. But my mom was in the audience and she was just like so confused by it. She understood it to be drag, but she was like, what is this from? Like, who is that character? And it kind of like looking back, I do sort of get sweaty. I'm just, it just wasn't a fun moment. It was, it was, it was a defining sort of locus of a thing that happened where it was like, oh, this is me cheapening things about me in order to entertain this audience that like 
doesn't care if I live or die. That's not true, but it's like this audience that isn't totally sympathetic to like what I'm going through. Whereas my mom is sitting there being like a little, like I remember looking over her when I was on stage and she was just like kind of in pain, I think. That's interesting because do you think it's because what you were singing you felt was racist or just the fact that you were just the performance and then that role is i mean is just racist i love avenue q as a show but it's just like so proudly offensive and that's sort of the charm of it but um the part of christmas eve is offensive the song underlines it's sort of knowingly talking about how racism is built into everybody's psyches and even this asian woman but i was in drag i was so i had lipstick on a wig a dress and i was about to go into conversion therapy Little did I know, but like a week, like a couple weeks later, like um, my mom like found this like chat window and it was just like s- sort of illicit and sexy with another guy. And then she read through it, printed it out. I came home from school uh. and now it's like, I have this great relationship with my parents, but you know, it was this thing where they were two people who had no familiarity, no idea, no notion of what it meant to be gay. And right. my dad would say things like from my village that I came from, there was no gay person. We never had a gay person. I was like, that's not true. But they just had no conception of how to address this. And so they were scientifically minded people. And so they were solutions oriented. So they thought this is a solution to this perceived problem. But anyway, yeah, that moment, I haven't talked about this moment ever with the Avenue Q thing. That was the moment that I saw like visible pain in my parents' face. It wasn't an anti-gay thing. It was more no. like you were subjugating who you really were to kind of please the crowd. Exactly. But it, I would say it was anti-Asian, probably. And anti-Asian. Yeah. But yeah, that was a moment where I was like, ooh, I'm like playing up these things about me at my own expense for these people that like ultimately aren't that important to me compared to like my mother who's sitting there uh, in the audience who ultimately doesn't have the right view on things in terms of my identity, but is still like her emotions still matter and all that stuff. And did you go to conversion therapy? Did you feel you had a choice in the matter? Were you doing it just because you're an obedient child? Probably just doing it out of obedience and out of some sense of duty. But there was this like ultimatum placed where I had all these options of where to go to college. But then all of a sudden it became this thing where, well, we sort of want to keep Bowen close. So he should either go to college in state or he can go to college where his sister is, which is NYU. Oh, yes. They didn't, they didn't fully understand was like this very gay college, but they were like, he can go to NYU and he can live with his sister and she can sort of be the um, chaperone as it were. And that's what ended up happening. But the term was that I would complete this conversion therapy over like eight weeks. And was your sister, when you were in high school, did she know you were gay? And was she secretly supportive? She knew I was gay. She was secretly ambivalent, I think, because she Mm -hmm. was still sympathetic to my parents. Of course. And she was like, you know, they, you know, the longer you hide this from them, the more painful it would be. And she's like, you know, very enlightened, educated, just enlightened person. Because clearly education doesn't really have anything to do with it because my parents were. And anyway, um, but yeah. And then she, for a while there, was put in this very like unenviable position of having to like mediate and like kind of communicate both sides to the other and that was probably very hard for her it's very generational it's yeah it's yeah not necessarily homophobia i mean it is homophobia but it's generational it's just it's a lack of understanding mm-hmm. um let me ask you, you seem like i said very obedient but did you get in trouble in high school with your teachers or yeah your, you did for what for sassafras 
for some sassafras. Um, I remember jokingly telling my Spanish teacher to shut up in Spanish. I mean, it was like, it was like, like little things like that. But then I did get suspended freshman year. Wait, I got so suspended. Go back yeah. for a second. First of all, shut okay. up in Spanish. I mean, silencio. You were just like, 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 like cayate. I was like, <laughs> oh no, I no 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 no. I got kicked out of class one time because I got. I, I, she didn't write me up. Thank God, Miss Buddington. She was lovely, and we got along so well. But one day, I was just feeling very feisty, and she like. <laughs> I can't believe I'm admitting to this. But she, like, on the transparency, like, you know, like, her hand slipped or something. And so I said, idiota. And then she was, like, bowing out. <laughs> I don't know why, but I was just a little imp. I was awful. I was so terrible. And she was, like, you do not speak to me now. And she handled it so well. So it was, like, teachers that I got along with and teachers who were, like, younger, who I would, like, have some, like, entry point into on, like, a aren't I funny and charming? Like, aren't I one of your like more rambunctious students, but like, I still turn in my homework. Like, isn't this the perfect balance of things? Sometimes like I would not respect boundaries and just be awful. I would ask my physics teacher about her boyfriend. Like it was just not great. Whatever. You yeah. totally remind me of me, but then your suspension for freshman year for what? So for, okay. Her name is Ashley. I don't remember her last name. She and I had this sort of parasexual joking friendship where like I was in the closet still, but like all the girls knew that I was gay, Mm -hmm. even though I wasn't outwardly saying it. But we had this bit going on all year, my freshman year, that like she and I were going to have sex. We're going to have sex over the summer. Ooh, the sex is going to be so just like just in like a fully facetious way. Mm -hmm. So in her yearbook, this was May yearbook came out. I took up a whole page and just went into detail about how we would consummate our love and have sex. And it ended with, I can't wait to fuck you. (laughs) (laughs) So then one day, so then that happens. That night I go to my violin lesson, come back. There's 30 messages on the answering machine. Uh... The messages were all just like, click, click, click. No actual sort of message. This number calls again. And it's Ashley's stepfather, who is this like, powerful, powerful lawyer. And he starts this off by going, I just want you to know that I've been at the phone for a very long time because there are a lot of yangs in the phone book. <laughs> I was like, okay, some light racism to start. But, oh, then, but then he, and then he just goes into how I am vile, terrible, disgusting. How could I ever corrupt his stepdaughter that way? And he was like, I'm going to make sure that you get expelled. <gasps> that you get expelled from Smoky Hill because this is so disgusting and this is so awful and terrible. Meanwhile, and this, by the way, was something between the two of you, you both would joke about, but you just happened to write it down. Is that it? Exactly. I wrote it down and then, and then I was sure that she hadn't like ratted me out or, or shown this to him. I'm sure it was a thing where he seemed overbearing and awful and he probably like flipped through every page of this yearbook and landed on my, on my note and then took it upon himself to call me. And he was like... I'm a very high-powered attorney in Denver. I will make sure to call the superintendent myself and to make sure that you get expelled. I was like, oh my God, this is the scariest, scariest moment of my life. Went to school the next day, terrified. Didn't tell my parents. Did not tell my parents what that phone call was. And they were I don't like, blame who's you. calling? They were like, who's calling? I was like, oh, no one. And it was just pale the entire night. Went to school the next day. Ashley was like, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. She just read through every single thing that everyone wrote, found yours, was so offended, whatever. So then get called into the dean's office and they suspended me for five days for sexual misconduct. 
for sexual misconduct. And it was this thing that I was like, I guess I have to write about this in my college essays. I was thinking so far ahead that I was like, okay, thank God I'm not in a registry, but I have to talk about this in my college applications. Oh my God. And what's so hilarious (laughs) is like, he probably didn't know that you were actually gay. Yes, no way. Yeah, no, absolutely not. So just like a crazy sort of disciplinary moment at an early, early juncture of high school for me. Did you wind up having amazing sex with Ashley? Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, I probably should just yeah. to, yeah. If I'm just gonna to kind of put a button, woman, just put totally. But on the story, what was the most putative, pu- punitive or putative? Wait, punitive. Punitive, like punish? Yeah. yeah. What was the most, what was the biggest punishment you got from your parents? I mean, is conversion therapy allowed? Does that count? Well, but that was, that was necessary. What, yeah, yeah. <laughs> what was an actual punishment? Um, Punishment was just um, for bad grades and for any bad grade in any subject, it meant that I would do math problems. So it didn't matter if I was doing poorly in English. It was just, okay, well, you got to do some algebra two hard, hard questions. My dad had this like garage sale textbook from like the seventies and he'd flip through and circle problems and be like, by the time I come home, these need to be done. And I would like do them. I'd be like, on some days I would like doing them. On other days I would hate doing them. It was whatever. But like my whole childhood was kind of defined by like deprivation where it was like, you're not growing up with cable, no video games, no consoles, no anything. So I feel like I was pretty used to like austerity and they, they didn't really have anywhere to go by the time I got to high school. So they were just like, I guess throw math problems at them. So that's, that's what happened. What was your version of a bad grade? Cause another was my version of a bad grade. I mean, I would get what they would call like white people bad grades where I would get like, <laughs> I would get like C's on stuff. And what did you think you were going to do after high school? Because you were kind of pursuing musical theater at first and then improv. Uh-huh. What did you think your career was going to be? I was like, I would love to act. But then I was sort of brought down so low by the conversion therapy experience that by the time I got to college, I was like, I better do something practical and I better do something that sort of honors like what my parents have sacrificed and gone through. And so I'll do chemistry because I was still a decent science student. But what does conversion therapy have to do with your career? That I was like sort of, that I had like built up this like fortress of guilt in my mind. That I was like, I should not stray from stability. Does that make sense? Because conversion therapy is not as much about you need to like women as you're decimating your parents. Is that what was happening? Well, yeah, that was sort of like the lens that it was all refracting through, which was, you know, your, my dad is the firstborn son. And so his child in Chinese culture and Han culture, which is me, his son gets the baton to sort of kind of run the relay race of like the family line being continued. So it was just all this like sort of filial responsibility that was being thrown at me. That was kind of the frame for the whole conversion therapy thing, which was, this is a family thing. This is about keeping a good relationship with your parents and sublimating all your own desires into something that's actually helpful, quote unquote. So you'd hope to be an actor. And then by the end of high school, basically you faded out on that big hope. Sure, because I was also watching like Grey's Anatomy and I was seeing Sandra O's character and thinking, oh, like I identify with this character so deeply. And I'm not sure if it's because the actress is Asian or the character is a doctor. So I was just like, oh, I might as well go and be a doctor because that checks all of these other boxes. And I'm good at science and I think I would be a good doctor because I'm social, but I'm also, like, I would have great bedside manner, but I would also like know things and all these things. So all of high school sort of funneled into that decision, which was, I'm going to go to NYU. I'm going to study chemistry and be pre-med, but I will also do my best to do improv 
whether it was on campus with the improv group there or at UCB or whatever. So NYU seems like the best recourse after like a very sort of tumultuous like two, three months of the summer before and the end of senior year. Thank God you switched your damn mind and went into comedy. I mean, I'm, yeah, I might, be, I might be a good doctor, but it's funny because now like I go back, like I went back to Thanksgiving and all the Asian families got together one night before on Wednesday and caught up with a lot of like the people who stayed in town who have become doctors and they're all like, oh my God, but like, I mean, I'm doing great, but like what you're doing is like pretty nifty. And I'm like, oh yeah, that's like for like the kids who my parents would constantly compare me to, to say that to me is like, it feels pretty good. Now it's time for This or That. In this segment, I make my guest choose between two pop culture sensations from their high school years. All right, so Bowen, this is the section where I kind of talk about the pop culture thingies that were happening while you were in high school. And you could tell me which one you were more into, even though you've already admitted you had no cable, no games, you basically had nothing. <laughs> yep. It's going to be super fun. Okay, so were you Team Edward or Team Jacob in terms of Twilight? Okay, I would say I'm more attracted to Robert Pattinson. So mm. that's Edward, right? Yes, ma'am. Okay, but I've never read the books or seen the movies, but I would say Robert, Edward, Edward. What have you been doing during quarantine? It's the perfect time to read all those books. <laughs> those specific books. What the hell? I'm the sorry. <laughs> okay, back in the day, were you a uh, Facebook, a MySpace, or a Friendster? So I was in high school around the time that Facebook was still exclusive to colleges or that you had to be invited at least. You had to be invited to be on it. By junior year, I was on. But MySpace was the first like little experimenting ground for my like social identity, my social media identity. So MySpace into Facebook. Now, by the way, you said you had that chat window open that your mom found out you were gay. Was that an AOL chat room? What was AOL. Your- AOL chat room, just going on those like general chat rooms where there was just trolls and stuff. And then you just kind of like put out your ASL, your age, sex, location. And then if those three numbers, if those three metrics like interested anybody, they would just like reach out to you privately. What was your screen name? Tasuki 100. Tasuki was this character from this anime that I really enjoyed. Terrible. Yeah, it sounds hashtag nerd. <laughs> um, I gotta be honest. Were you team... Jennifer Aniston, or were you more Team Brangelina? I was very, very mad at Angelina Jolie. I was very much Team Jennifer. Has there maybe been a rapprochement? Have you forgiven her? Oh my gosh! Um, sure. I mean, I admire Angelina's sort of humanitarian pursuits in the face of having John Voight as the father. Oh, so you understand where she's coming from? Totally, totally. And when you say you were very mad, what did that mean? Was it a lot of just talking with your friends about it? You never wrote like a fan letter of anger, did you? No, I was just, um, I just remember privately thinking that's so awful that she would take this woman's husband away from her. Mm-hmm. I'm so curious. In terms of High School Musical, one, two, or three, or all three? I haven't seen any of them. Bowen. Any of them. No cable, I'm telling you. I know, but you were a High School Musical nerd. It was your thing. It was actually very alienating when High School Musical 1 came out. There was just one day at school where everyone was quoting it ad nauseum. And I was like, you're alienating me and I never want to see this piece of media. It's supposed to be the opposite. You're supposed to go, oh my God, I want to be part of the crowd. 
No, see, like Rent did that for me. Like I was very much like, oh my God, what is this? I want to know about Rent. High School Musical, like it just seems so shallow. I was just like, I know everything I need to know about this. I don't, I, I would love, I would gladly watch it now. But back then I remember being very sort of insecure about, again, my media diet, what I knew, my references. I was like, I don't know what they're talking about, so I'm not going to do it. But there were other things like Rent, Wicked was another, I mean, it's like, there were other fixtures in musical theater that I was like, I want to know more. High School Musical for some reason put me off. You gladly watch it now, yet you've had six months of quarantine. What have you been doing with you? <laughs> okay, I'm ashamed. Were you pro Tina Fey as Liz Lemon or pro Tina Fey as Sarah Palin, which was your go-to? It's funny. The first time she did Sarah Palin, I remember watching it live, and I got the call during that cold open that I got on the improv team <gasps> um, at NYU. So that was really nice. But I was one of the like ground floor viewers of 30 Rock first season, 2006. Mm. Wow. Um, Could be like, Herman. This- Pee Wee Herman, yes. I was just like, oh my God, the show is incredible. Why, aren't, why isn't everybody talking about it? So I would say pro Liz Lemon because I was more high school. Did you ever get to work with Tina? I was on Kimmy Schmidt, the movie. I got to meet her on set at the Plaza. That was really nice. I was doing that while I was writing for Cecily's Strong Show. She was asking me about that. She's like, how's Schmidt doing? I was like, it's great. And then she, God, she like gave me the time of day, which is crazy. And then, oh my God, <laughs> this, is like, this, is like the, this is the best moment I've had so far at SNL, which was... I did a Weekend Update character address. I didn't go to the show, but David Byrne was a musical guest and I went to go see David Byrne at dress rehearsal, but Tina, Anna Gasteyer and Rachel Dratch were all like standing next to me. They hadn't noticed me, but I was watching them and they were just having a great time, just drinking uh-huh. their wines. And then I do update, I go to my dressing room and then I hear a knock at the door. I share a dressing room with Chris Rad. I hear a knock at the door and I go, yep, I, usually it's a page. I'm like, yep, no answer. They keep knocking. I go, yep. No answer. Keep knocking. Then I go, okay, like, what is it? I open the door. It's Anna, Rachel, Tina. <gasps> and they're like, we just wanted to say hi. And how great was your update, Baba? And they all came in and sat in my dressing room. <sighs> and then Chris came in and we all just kind of like sat around and like shot the shit. And Tina, oh my God, Tina was so great. And then I got to explain to Tina, I was like, oh, one of your writers on this show is a good friend of mine. And we go to Fire Island every year. And she's like, oh, it's good to know that like the next generation is picking up the Fire Island sort of right because she has a house yeah so and she god i i was talking about this on another podcast but i went to go see mean girls four times in theaters transcribed it when it came out on dvd i mean tina is like tina's my number one yeah by the way me too i'm like she's my comedy idol i loved your interview with her really good oh um on this on yeah on this yeah oh thank you so much I always use her book over, under, through to get past an obstacle. Yes, the Sesame Street thing, yeah. Yes. So oh, good. I love that you love her too. Um, I know you didn't have a video game console, but were you Guitar Hero or Dance Dance Revolution? I was very good at DDR. Very good. In fact, oh my God, this is very much a high school experience for me. It was I would go to the Best Buy at the mall and they would have an open DDR pad and it was me and one of the employees and we would just like have dance-offs and then people would gather. Like people... <laughs> would gather at the Best Buy to watch us dance. And it was, I felt very, that was a moment where I felt on display and validated, but good. You know, they have like security cameras. Wouldn't it be amazing to find old security footage of you? (laughs) Yeah, yeah, I would love that. Back in the day. In terms of music, were you, they tried to make me go to rehab or were Uh you Umbrella Ella Ella? Oh, definitely both. I mean, but in terms of the binary of like more, independent like Amy Winehouse or more mainstream like Rihanna. I was very annoying sophomore year and on about like going to record stores and like listening to Sufjan Stevens and Cat Power and like all these indie. I was very much a music snob Mm -hmm. at the time I was a sophomore. And also Barnum you loved. 
Silence. And part of my life. <laughs> Thank you. This is High School versus Now, where we find out how much my guest has changed since high school. Who was sort of a straight guy you maybe had a crush on when you were in high school? Oh my gosh, so many. This guy, Jason Lucas, was sort of like the heartthrob. And he had a very Zac Efron storyline where he was on the lacrosse team. But then Miss Wood was very aggressive about getting him to be Bobby and crazy for you. You were available. Why couldn't you do it? I was just one of the cowboys. I was one of the Asian cowboys in the Wild West. She would do anything to keep you in that ensemble. (laughs) Okay. So here we go. So Jason, cutie Lucas, sees you right after Chem Lab. And Uh he says uh, he has an extra ticket for Pirates of the Caribbean 2. Okay. And then he basically says... He'd like you to be his Bella and he'd be Edward. <laughs> but he says no one can know about it. So we're going to see pirates, but he wants us to be the characters in Twilight? In life, he sort of yeah, thinks of yeah, you yeah. as his Bella. Oh, uh, but no one can know about it? Yeah, no one can ever know. But is it like sex is on the table though? I think it's sort of like a sex slash dating thing that's going to be happening for a while. Okay. Um, yeah, I would totally have gone for it. In high school? Yeah, for sure. Okay, well, then let's see if you've changed. How okay. about... Um, <laughs> Ashton Kutcher, I don't know why him, but he's such a cutie. <laughs> yes, SNL. He uh-huh. asked me to dress room to talk about some sketch ideas. Late at night, he opens the door. He's, you know, nude, but wearing just like plastic bubble wrap uh-huh, around himself. Uh-huh, uh-huh. He says, he's been obsessed with you ever since your Peloton sketch where you look super cute. Uh-huh, okay. He wants to start something going on, but again, it's got to be down low. No one can know. I don't know. I would say yes, but I even lose patience nowadays when like, couples will like sort of hit you up on the apps and be like, hey, we're looking for a third. I'm like, no, don't bring me into this mess. Just come at me when like you're available, you know? So in high school, it was okay for you to be with someone unavailable, but now you're more mature. Is that what you're saying? I just have less tolerance for it. I don't know if it's maturity. Maybe it's more mature for me to be with an unavailable person and making it work in spite of it. What? That's like you and Mensa, like trying to show the reverse a logarithm. No, it is not more mature to be with someone unavailable. Cut. I don't know. Cut. I'm going to say you're more mature. Okay, my final thing is our last thing that we always do is we ask you, the first thing is, is there anything you'd like to say to your high school if they're listening, either to your whole high school, a particular person in your high school, or maybe one of your teachers? Dean Rasmussen, she was the dean who sort of laid out my terms of suspension my freshman year. We were adversarial at one point. But I knew that you were this butch woman who drove a Prius. So I hope to someday just sort of join in like a classic gay male lesbian woman, you know, rapport to the whole class of Smoky Hill 2008. Uh, I hope we're all doing well. Zach Glenn, who was our student body president, did not get his shit together and organize a reunion in 2018, which I'm a little disappointed about. But I hope to one day reconvene with you all. Um, that's it. And to myself, oh my gosh. Yeah, just... you're 15 year well, to literally you at 15 years old, what would you say yeah. if you're listening? God, like strap yourself in. It's going to be really crazy. You're going to get suspended. You're going to be in this cold war with your musical theater teacher. You're going to go to conversion therapy. You're going to do all these things. Um, but yeah, I mean, you'll, you'll come out better. And, uh, start wearing lower-waisted pants because at the time they weren't stylish, but now they are. That's good advice. That's good advice. Um, Okay, (laughs) Bo and Yang, such a pleasure to talk to you. I can't wait to watch you be hilarious on Saturday nights, and I welcome you to Broadway one day. I will not put you in the ensemble. Thank you, Seth. Because somehow I control Broadway. Thank you, Bowen. (laughs) (laughs) Seth Rudetsky's Back to School is produced by Sarah Esikoff. 
Our theme music was written by me, Seth Rudetsky, and sung by me and Maggie McDowell. Our band was me, Seth Rudetsky, Mark Schmid, Carrie Meads, and Jim Hirschman. This episode was mixed by Sarah Esikoff. Seth Rudetsky's Back to School is a Sirius XM production. 